Let's just pray, continuing prayer, as we bow our heads for a moment. Lord, we've just said that the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, and we want them to be yours in the lives that we live. We pray that as we attend to your word tonight, we may leave here with your kingdom, your power, and your glory more firmly embedded in our lives. Amen. Well, do please find Hazia. We're going to do a fair bit of um, flicking, but... uh, find the book, I suppose. It starts on page 900. If there is a God, they may say, then why is there suffering in the world? Uh, Just out of interest, really. Put put your hands up if if you've heard someone ask that question. Yes, lots of us. Put your hands down. Well, of course, it begs the question about what a world would look like that was free and not suffering. Uh, But anyway, there's a different question that we might ask ourselves, and it goes the other way. If there is a God, we may say, then why would a chosen people rebel? What is it, in other words, about the human heart Never mind God's heart. What is it about human heart that seems, yours and mine, that seems just so hopelessly, dreadfully skewed? Why, faced with the love of a God, would we behave the way we do? And that's the question with which Hazir is concerned time and again. How can this rebellion be? Well, earlier on I asked you about inheritance tax, And I did promise there was a reason, because it strikes me that wrapped up in the issue of inheritance tax is the question of which institution takes priority, the state or the family? Are we to be regarded as children of the state, all equal in rights, dignity and capacity, all starting at the same point, educated and nurtured in our various skills and gifts, We may end up in very different places, but the state has done what it can to make us equal at the start. It's it's done what it can using various levers, including making it impossible under this model for us to inherit anything from family so that everyone starts on the same level playing field. If you wanted to take that model, you would uh, put inheritance tax at 100%. Or are we to be regarded as children of our families? Different in the randomness that that brings, with expectations, capacities, and hopes that differ according to what our families may offer to us in the course of life and at the death of our parents. It means we're different from the start. And the levers available to the state are diminished over the levers available to the family. And in that model... We may say we've been taxed already as we earned money, and it should be possible for us to choose to spend, say, £20,000, not on a new car, but if we choose, so choose, on passing on £20,000 to the next generation. Well, there are good arguments for both of those, though it's clear to see from among us 
that we tended more towards family. There are good arguments for both, but Hosea is clear about the side of the argument that he comes down on. He is, he, well, I suppose we should be grateful. He's with us. Uh, he, he's on the side of family. Family is the lens through which he views everything. And his analysis of rebellion, that other question I mentioned, how can we possibly rebel? His analysis of rebellion goes to family rebellions, primarily. Two of them. And we'll come to those. Well, let's set some background. Perhaps if you've been here in the last few weeks and known the lives of these prophets, you'll be familiar with uh, the division between the northern and southern kingdom. We're in the 8th century before Christ. uh, And it's worth saying that these places are absolutely tiny. Israel, which is also known as Ephraim, that's why you get both names in the reading, for example, that we had. Israel in the north uh, is composed of 10 tribes and is all of about 100 miles long, about 50 miles wide in total area. It's smaller than Wales. Uh, about about uh, uh, Jerusalem, uh, well, kind of just north of Jerusalem, that's Israel. Then south of Jer- Jerusalem is Benjamin and Judah, just two tribes. That's very stable. Um, and that's about 50 um, miles long. And again, uh, about, se- well, 75 miles wide. Uh, that's much smaller than Wales. These places are tiny. Israel, in the north, is coming to the end of her days. Within a couple of decades, she's going to get wiped out. A period of some prosperity. But Hosea attacks Israel for three appalling crimes in the eyes of God. Now, as I go through these three, I want you to think about the world we live in. It's pretty obvious that we've got the same three things going on. You might want to vary and say, well... uh, I reckon we've got, it's worse over here or worse over there. But these three things are absolutely what's going on at the moment. Firstly, Hosea attacks Israel for the terrible moral injustice that's going on as the rich abuse their power over the poor. Go to chapter 4 and verse 2 on page 902. Chapter 4 and verse 2. There is only cursing lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land mourns and all who uh, live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are dying. Environmental impact, notice, by the way. Very modern. There's a terrible moral injustice. Secondly, there's a spiritual obscenity going on as the people, and that includes especially the leaders, the priests and the the prophets, flirt with the fertility gods, the Baals. These were the gods of ancient Canaan before the people of Israel moved into the territory. So they've been there many hundreds of years the people, and the old gods are still fighting. And the people of Israel are flirting with these local uh, fertility gods, 
It means going to sleep up at the shrine with the cult prostitutes to make good harvests happen. It means going to the fertility feasts and, of course, enjoying the abundance of the fertility feast, especially the abundance that leads you to getting completely wrecked. So chapter 4 again in verses 10 to 12. They will hear, they will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but not increase because they've deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution, to old wine and new, which take away the understanding of my people. Uh, They consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. Moral injustice, spiritual obscenity, and then political desperation. Um, uh, They were relatively prosperous, but then, just as now, the Middle East is caught up in power plays at all times. And what was happening in Israel... Um, uh, Ephraim in the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, they never never really got on, and it was always a bit pressured, and it was a question of who got on with whom and uh, what have you. So the question was always, who is going to react in what ways to the other power groups going on? And the really big one at this time was Assyria. The reading that we had spoke about the great king. The great king is the king of Assyria. That's kind of like Iraq. Sorry, Iraq. Um, uh, so so that's, what the, that's who the great king is. Assyria was the great power. And always the issue was, do we ask Assyria for help against Egypt, or do we ask Egypt for help against Assyria? We can't do it by ourselves. We've got to form alliances. And God constantly said, I'm not telling you you can do it by yourselves. I'm telling you I will do it. But you must not go running off to Assyria, running off to Egypt, thinking that they will help. They will only make things worse, which, of course, they did. So moral injustice, spiritual obscenity, political desperation. Now, think about Ukraine. What, What went on in Ukraine recently? They started to make increasing moves toward the Western, towards Western Europe. Russia didn't like it. Russia did something about it. Ukraine feels, it's actually a huge country, um, but relative to the other groups that it's concerned with, it's not all that big. Uh, So Ukraine felt squeezed between Russia and the appeal of the West. Do we get the West to kind of might up against Russia or vice versa? Well, Russia decided to take that question out of their hands. But we know what that kind of political being in the middleness does. We know what it's like living in a country where many, much better than many, nonetheless, we have a moral... Uh, it's always possible to find situations in which the rich are abusing their power. Sadly, it's also possible to find spiritual obscenity from time to time, too. I have a, a, a good friend who's uh, a Catholic a priest. He's quite young, but he went into the Catholic priesthood because he decided that that was the way in which he could best respond to the crisis in the Catholic priesthood after all the cases of paedophilia. There is spiritual obscenity, and it's by no means only, of course, confined to the Catholics. And Hosea looks at that rebellion through the lens of two 
family relationships. The first of them is marriage. Israel reckoned that her relationship with God was as his beloved wife. But to show how far they've drifted, Hosea is given the most appalling instruction from God. And this is, this is absolutely foundational to Hosea. So if you forget everything else about Hosea tonight, remember this. It's in chapter 1, and it's verses 2 and 3. When the Lord... Um, uh, uh, by the way, I'm thrilled. We're getting a new song tonight at the end, which actually names God. God has a name. He's not called God. He's called Yahweh. Um, and we could do well to remember that God has a name. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his name. Yahweh is his Old Testament name, and we'll be using it tonight. So when you see those little four letters with, cap- with ten capitals, the Lord, it means Yahweh. When Yahweh began to speak through Hosea, Yahweh said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Goma, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. He is marrying a woman who's already guilty of adultery. His adulterous wife conceives and then, uh, uh, after this one called uh, Jezreel in verse... uh, My eyes not very good. Four... Then in verse 6, Goma conceived again. And the line is now different. Do you notice it does not say, and bore him a son. Why? Because it's someone else's son. She conceived, but it was not his this time. She gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her lo Rahamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I'm going to show love to the house of Judah, that's the guys in the south, remember, and I will save them. After she'd, sorry, verse 8, after she'd weaned Lorahamah, Goma had another son, and then the Lord said, call him Loammi, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Remember that little bit in 1 Peter that says the people where it was said, you are not my people, you will be called my people, that's where it comes from. This poor man, is given this instruction to marry the most awful woman. And it's going to get worse. He is told to return in chapter 3. Go show your love to your wife again. Presumably he'd set her aside after all this adultery. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Imagine, just imagine. Though they turned to other gods and loved the sacred raisin cakes, so I bought her. He has to buy her back for 15 shekels of silver. It's quite a lot of money, actually. I guess she's behaved pretty much like a prostitute, so that to get her back as a wife, he's got to buy her. Then I told her, these are the conditions. You are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute be intimate with any man. Imagine. Just imagine. It's the most terrible picture. And the lives of some of us here are going to have been touched by adultery. How awful it is. The foulness. The forgiveness. The pain. The years that the doubting goes on, even if a relationship can be restored. And I I've known, thank God, I've known quite a few who've tried to restore the relationship, but it's unbelievably tough. 
Well, that's one of the relationships, husband and wife. And, and it's used by Hosea, by God, through Hosea, to speak to the disobedience of following other gods, especially the gods of the nations, prostituting themselves to the gods of the other nations when they had been sworn to the one God, Yahweh. The other relationship is father and child. Turn to uh, chapter 11, page 907. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. That's how I treated them when they were slaves in Egypt. Then verse 8, how can I give, this is after all the judgment, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? And the promise that follows, at verse 10, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt. See, they've gone to Egypt because they thought it might make life easier, but no, they're going to have to come back trembling like birds from Egypt. Like doves from Assyria, they'd gone to Assyria thinking it might make life easier, but they're going to have to come back. And I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. And that's a different matrix of disobedience. If husband and wife is about the disobedience of following other gods... Father and child is the disobedience of pursuing alternative politics, especially with the kings of the nations. Well, lots of you will be able to tell me, no doubt, because you've uh, been at a good Bible teaching church here or somewhere else, what agape means in New Testament Greek. It means love of an undeserving and gracious kind. But let me tell you about a good Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed means love, but not like agape does. Look at chapter 2, please, and verses 19 through to 20. We'll come back to this. These are just gorgeous, glowing words. I'll betroth you to... Sorry, verse 19 of chapter 2. I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I'll betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. The little word love in there is chesed. And I could go through any of those words, and perhaps I will a little later, but they're all rich. But chesed is a steadfast love. I doubt if there's anyone in the room who hasn't at some point been let down in love maybe parental, maybe someone you fell in love with. But chesed is a love that is forever and unshakably loyal to the one who continues loved. It is the opposite of the running around after other gods that Israel's been involved in. 
And Hosea, is, is, it almost like has this contraflow system running through it. Most of it is about judgment and disaster, but then every now and then you get these little contraflows of chesed, of the reminders of where they've come from and where they could still go. Those are the moments where God's chesed and tender compassion come to the fore. So look at chapter 1 and verse 10. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Or chapter 2 and verse 14. Therefore I'm going to allure her, I will lead her into the desert, speak tenderly to her. I'll give her back her vineyards and will make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. Valley of Achor was a, a, a byword for wretchedness. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Or chapter 11 again, if you flick forward in verse 8. I read some of that earlier, but let's perhaps go to verse 9. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. We're on top of page 908 now. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. Well, there is a mystery in that change of heart in God that goes on quite a lot in Hosea. But if you've been listening and you know your New Testament, you'll remember quite a number of uh, references that we've already quoted. Uh, Things that are in the New Testament. Out of Egypt I called my son. Those who are not a people I will call my people. And so it goes. Remembrances that though there is judgment, there's this kind of vein of mercy... And Hosea never quite brings them together. It takes one about 700 years later to bring them together. There's a change of heart from God, but there's never a change of heart in the people. The closest is in the reading that we had. So please turn to chapter 5 and verse 13. It's the music to the ears of a preacher listening to that noise. Um... So verse, let's pick, uh, 14. I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. Incidentally, look at the language. Ephraim sent to the great king. God is going to be a great lion. Um, Like a great lion to Judah, I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Well, you can imagine that's a disaster, and so in, verse, in chapter 6, they say, Come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us to pieces. But they never say the one thing God wanted them to say in verse 15. They do not admit their guilt. And because of that, the judgment is coming. Hosea is full of nature. Lions roar, birds are caught, food is spoiled, eagles hunt, crops fail, roots wither. Children are slaughtered, animals are beaten, trade is corrupted, warehouses are raided. And all of these are a metaphor, or metaphors, of a situation gone so bad that, as God says at one point, I will have no compassion. Well, that's the, that's the sort of the, the basic fundamental of Hosea. In all of that mess, Israel is going to have to do two, uh, three things. Firstly, a repentance of heart. Like I said in verse 15 of chapter 5, you must admit 
your guilt. It's not enough just to turn back to God and say, God's job is to be nice. You must admit your guilt. Then, chapter 12 and verse 6, a return to the Lord, a repentance of heart and a return to the Lord. Chapter 12 and verse 6, you must return to your God. Not just as a nod of acknowledgement, but a clear rejection of alternatives. Assyria cannot save us, says chapter 14. We will not mount war horses. To return to God is to reject all others. And that, of course, is still true. But that rejection is then added to a personal commitment. And that has moral qualities. So, uh, again, same verse chapter 12 and verse 8. Maintain love and justice. Repentance of heart. Return to the Lord. Restore love and justice. And the spiritual quality of attendance on God. It amounts to a new obedience. Now, what I find disturbing in all of this, as I prepared, is that the power of Hosea sits in these relationships of husband and wife, father and child, but neither of those today, right today, is conceived of as being fundamentally about obedience, but in those days it was. They had no problem working with a model in which it was the husband and father who was to offer this unswerving loyalty, loyal protection, loving protection, with the wife or child offering unswerving obedience. And we've split them off. We understand love as an emotion that binds families together. But obedience and loyalty are no longer such a part of the picture. We kind of push that off towards the state. It's the state's job to defend. A parent should be mild and not authoritative. Hosea would have had no problem with the inheritance tax question. Family would win every time, 100%. Which does give us a problem when we translate this language into our own as we try and draw to a close. Because the intensity of the tenderness was impossible for Hosea without the intensity of the loyal authority. A non-authoritative father or husband was by definition, could not be a loving, tender one because he didn't have what it took, didn't have the capacity without the authority to bring to bear what love could achieve. And I don't think it's something we simply solve by saying the word Jesus. After all, it's clear that Jesus is working with a model that's deeply authoritative. Think of the judge, the son of man. And it's deeply tender. No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. And I suspect it matters because we can therefore split off relationship with Jesus, soft, tender, cuddly, warm, nice Jesus, from obedience to Jesus. We go all mushy about something concerning which Jesus has very little to say, relationship, and resist the things concerning which he has a great deal to say. You are my friends if you do what I tell you. We're so suspicious of the authority claims in the lives that we live that we've become suspicious of the authority of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to finish by going back to chapter 2. Go with me, please. Last of the flicking. And I want to go back to those words in in verse 19 of chapter 2, page 901. What if there was not just tenderness and love, 
But what if there was in your life, in the life of our planet, an authority that is simply and overwhelmingly good? Let me try and translate those words in verses 19 and 20 into English and carry something of the flavor of the Hebrew. What if there was one who was righteous? That means straight and upright in character. What if there was one who was just? And that means, very differently from our justice, one who was inclined to save and rescue the oppressed. What if there was one who was steadfastly loving, chesed, with loyalty, in their love. And one who was compassionate, tender, and gentle. And one finally who was faithful, reliable, and utterly credible. The appeal from Hosea is complex. Love and love and warning are both there, but we've heard lots from the prophets about warning. And I would want to end tonight with a recognition that the one made known to us in Jesus is all that Hosea knew and more, worth returning to, worth repenting, worth restoring love and justice. But if warning will not do it for you, I wonder if those five words might. If there's an authority in the world that is righteous, just, loving, compassionate and faithful, what would it be for you to be those things? God is those things. So if you are wandering, repent, admit your guilt, return, and be restored to a fresh obedience in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, only you will ever be all of those things. Righteous, just, loving, compassionate, faithful. Our words are thin to describe your dealings with your people. Please let us find in Jesus Christ the God whose authority shows all of those things. And give us a confidence to live our lives before that God whose name is made most fully known to us in Jesus. Amen.